What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today on the show, I am sitting with Trish Thomas. She is the CEO and co-founder at Whole and Free Foods. She's also a faculty member at Northwestern University. We get into a great conversation about how people need to start fearlessly asking and some of the hurdles to get through to actually be vulnerable and put yourself out there and ask for things, but a really, really powerful conversation. And then on the marketing side, we actually flip to talk about product market stick. And we explore this at length. I'm not going to go too much into it right now because I think y'all should stick around and hear that bit from Trish herself. Yeah, stick around for this one. I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get into that, as always, the show is brought to you by us here at Cave Social. We're a marketing agency that helps companies create content, run ads, ultimately get more customers through social media. So if you're feeling stuck with your story on social and you need help, head over to cavesocial.com, schedule a call. We'd be glad to help you out. All right, sit back and enjoy this one. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm excited today, guys. I'm excited to bring on this next guest, Trish Thomas. She is the co-founder and CEO at Whole and Free Foods. Also, she's a faculty member at Northwestern University. Trish, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. We got some interesting stuff to cover today. Predominantly, I want to dive into this new you know, methodology that you're tackling and kind of putting out there and, and really pioneering. But before we get into that, I want to hear about your background. Walk me through your career and how you got to starting a company, but then also simultaneously and working as a faculty member at Northwestern. Sure. I think that the reason why I'm an entrepreneur is that I was growing too fast as an adolescent and my pants were so short and I knew my parents didn't have the money to buy me new ones. So I just went to work. I started employing the neighborhood probably at 11. I was kind of a babysitting madam where I would find work and I'd hire people to babysit and shovel snow and do parties. And I I come from a family that has the oldest family owned design and architecture business in the country out of Cincinnati. And so we've been in business 165 years. So I started started working at 13 and so was always surrounded by entrepreneurs. I have a family of them. And then came to Chicago right out of college, had studied design to go into the family business and was working for a prestigious design firm here, Eva Maddox Associates. And we were doing a lot of work for nonprofits. And I'd look at those meetings and I think these guys don't need better looking stores. They need stuff they can sell. So about a year to the day I graduated from college, I decided to start a company to do product development for nonprofits not having a clue what I was doing. So I bought some concrete blocks, a piece of wood, had a little computer somebody gave me, and I sat down to start to work and didn't know what to do. Turned on Oprah, started again the next day. But it was funny that nonprofits take a long time to make decisions. So by the time the Museum of Science and Industry came back, for example, and said they wanted to work with us, it was two years later. And by then we had already launched a toy company off of some of our ideas and sold it. And so after I sold my toy company, I ended up getting tapped by Thompson Newspapers. That was about a billion dollar newspaper company that there was this thing that was happening called the Internet. This is 1996. I'm old, Jordan. And and they wanted to build a kids platform. So we did. So we ended up building Freezone.com, which was the first safe online site for kids on the Internet. 
So it was 100% fully monitored. By 1998, we were making money hand over fist. And it was a, it was a slightly challenging time because I was the only person running a profitable internet company that couldn't go public during then because we were owned by a newspaper company. From there, took a couple years off. I finally left. I gave up and getting it out. And then from there, took a year or so off and went and traveled around the world. That was a blast. 127 cities and 27 countries. And after 9-11, that was sort of the end of that. So came back and um, met with the people I worked with for years and said, what do you guys want to do? And they said they wanted to do entertainment or cool stuff, I believe, was what Rick Carton said. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, cool stuff, right? Entertainment. I said, well, I don't know what that means, but let me go figure it out and we'll we'll start with kids. So we did. So we created Star Farm Productions that developed original intellectual property that we then licensed into books, television, video games. So our Edgar Allan series was in 65 languages in over 100 countries. And Simon & Schuster produced the books or published the books, Penguin. We were on a roll. And then... Right before the debt markets crashed, we were about to take $12 million in venture capital for about a third of the company. And the night before we were going to close, they they said, Trish, I believe they patted me on the arm and they said, Trish, you'll be fine. Your investors are going to take a hit. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, we're going to change the deal. And I said, excuse me, I'm going to the bathroom. So went to the bathroom, called our lead investor, said, what do I do? She said, walk. So we did. Took a while to untangle from that. And by then the debt markets had started to tank and I was visibly pregnant and I could no longer raise equity. So we ended up taking senior debt, which proved a a very bad decision later on because it got called. But you asked me how I ended up teaching. And what I've learned over 30 years of being an entrepreneur is that there's one skill that defines success and failure. And it's, it's the ability to fearlessly ask whether that's for help, for the order, to navigate a difficult conversation. And during that time, there was one phone call I didn't make. I didn't call Nickelodeon and say, hey, what happens if we're late delivering our TV show, which was about a million dollars a month in a burn rate? So I was running around trying to raise money. And I now know that because I asked the woman who was head of programming, who's at a different network now, she was here about a year ago. And I said, hey, what would have happened if I was late? She said, nothing. I always wondered why you didn't ask. And I was like, oh my God. Because during that time, a lot of the mistakes that I made were not moving fast enough to make tough decisions. Firing people, decreasing the burn rate, and asking for help, right? I thought I had to have all the answers. I thought I was the CEO. Everybody was counting on me and I took all the burden on myself versus knowing that it was okay to reach out. And I would say having gone through that experience was what really led to me teaching because I realized there was a set of skills that nobody teaches us. That is, you know, the ability to fearlessly ask, navigate a difficult conversation, build stakeholder networks of support, manage through adversity, and reframe failure in real time as usable data. What I learned while launching uh, my current company during a pandemic was that those skills really work. So we're still here a year later, even though we launched Toll and Free on March 1st and then shut it down on March 11th of 2020. And then we got back up and going on May 1st. Wow. I love it. So much there that I think the listeners are going to benefit from hearing. And and I love it. And I love this idea of 
fearlessly asking, you know, and whether that's like you said, asking for help or asking for the order, I think we get in our own heads so much. And then the typical CEO thing that we all do is like, oh, I'll just take more on. I'll just take more on. I'll just, I can handle it. I'm some warrior person. I'll just do it. And it's like, oh no, people will help you and you can, people will extend deadlines. And I think that's so important just for, to sink in for listeners. Like it's okay. Ask ask. The world is a lot more accommodating than we think when we actually go out and, and ask for things. So that is amazing. It, I will say it's not as easy as it sounds. So I, after teaching about a thousand people how to do this, you know, the, the book that I assigned first is actually Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. Because the when you look at sort of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of asking is that you have to understand that it's okay to be vulnerable. And then you have to be able to like understand what you're afraid of, answer the question, what's the worst thing that can happen and untangle that by going in and saying, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? Assign a numerical percentage to that. Then say, what's the best thing that can happen? Assign a numerical percentage to that. And then you can actually move forward. And what I found is that when people actually take the time to answer that, what's the worst thing that can happen by me asking you, that their anxiety comes down and they can make a much more confident ask, which needs to be specific, measurable, and asked in a way that assumes you're going to say yes, versus sometimes we're wimpy in our asks. Like, well, hey, Jordan, do you, I mean, is it okay? I know you're busy, but like, can we like change the time of our podcast? Forget it. No. Ask. I think the Harvard Business Review, too, just came out and said that we actually have more fear and agony asking hard questions or asking for things than the receiver of the hard question does. They actually just want it to be direct and to the point because we don't want it to be wimpy, like just ask. And it is a lot harder to do than to say it's the same as going up to a 15 year old boy and saying hey go ask the cute girl out at your school that you have a crush on sure in theory but i was 15 once and that was terrifying so i think a lot of those things transcend as we move forward in life but i think that i mean and maybe we're going to discuss how to fearlessly ask and that's where we're headed <laughs> but when you think about that right when somebody else asks us for help it's a gift it means that they they value us enough to seek our counsel, to seek our wisdom, or to seek our time. But yet when you flip that, the first thing that the little voices in our head go to is that, oh, they're too busy. I'm not worthy. I don't want to be a burden. And it doesn't make any sense, right? So when we're giving, when we're the recipient of the ask, it makes us feel good and important. But yet we automatically think that the other people receiving our asks are having a completely different and negative experience based on nothing, except that the stories we tell ourselves in our heads. Oh yeah, connecting the invisible dots in our heads. I'm always like, I catch myself sometimes. I'm like, I went on such a fictitious train of thought on how this person was interpreting my ask, for instance, say like I asked you know, you to come on the podcast and then I think, who am I to be asking? What is this show that I'm even trying to do? Who Am I a good host? I'm not even, I didn't go to school for this. The imposter syndrome sinks in, but then you do it. You do the ask and then I think it becomes easier over time. You're, you start to see that people gravitate towards it. And you're like, oh, so that like subtle reframing or big reframing can open so many doors. Well, and there's, I've spent the five years, past five years really working on how to teach fearless asking. So when you look at it, you know, you prepare for your ask, you identify what you're afraid of. Then you ask with confidence, assuming they're saying yes. And then the next step is actually the hardest, which is to be quiet. 
to be silent and to listen to what their response is. And that for me, I'm a talker, right? So that was like the hardest thing to do. And I'll tell you in a story in a second. And then from there, you go to hearing offers, right? A lot of people call that managing objection. But really, when you get your head around and you take the fear out of the ass, then essentially what you're doing is no just unlocks what they are going to say yes to. So Chris Voss, who wrote Never Split the Difference, who I'm crazy about, right? If you ever get him on this podcast, I want to come. So uh, I'm obsessed with his work. I teach it. But, but he laid it out best, right? Is that once somebody says no to you, they stop living in their head because until they actually get the no out, they're thinking, oh, the guy's going to keep talking. When's she going to be quiet? Is they going to be mad at me when I say no? And once they actually say no, they relax and start to lean into it. And then you can just keep asking them more questions until you learn what they're going to say yes to. And then you repeat the cycle again. But I have a funny story that on the silence piece, there was something I really wanted to do that had a monetary component, but I really wanted to do it anyhow. But when I heard the monetary component, it was so much lower than I thought that I really had to think about if this was worth my time. So I was in this meeting, this negotiation with a woman, and she told me what the money was. And I literally was quiet because I was thinking about it. And I was really thinking about it. I was doing math in my head. And all of a sudden she said, okay, fine, I'll pay you more. I'll pay you like 30% more, but don't tell anybody. And I dying laughing because I wasn't even going to ask her for more money. I was just trying to get to yes in my head. But the silence made her so uncomfortable that she just gave me a different offer out of the gate. So there's real power in silence. It's crazy. If you, and anyone who hasn't heard of Chris Voss, definitely go check out his book, Never Splitting the Difference. But it's very true that don't negotiate with yourself when you do put the ask out, right? Like I would do that when we first started the agency. I'd offer a price and then be say, but if that, you know, we also are open to this, the whatever price reduction. And I was like, I'm already establishing that we're less valuable or I'm willing to do more than the initial price offering. Like this is crazy. And then, you know, you get experience, you read some books and learn from people like, you know, Chris and and, and hopefully people listening to this are learning and saying, oh, okay, I, I need to ask. And then I need to be silent. Let that answer come in, whatever it is. Let me gather more information. And then I can ask another question. I think that Chris Voss also gets credit for really like valuable tactic, which is the accusation audit. So if you're finding, like when I find, if you're, if you're having a lot of anxiety about an ask and what a person's going to be thinking about you, if you take the time to articulate it always on paper and, and think of what's the worst thing that they could, what are, what's the worst thing they're thinking, right? And then you say that up front. So I'm thinking, ah, oh, Jordan's going to think I'm this like crazy ass chick who's all over the place, which I kind of am, by the way, right now. And that I won't have anything valuable to say and that I'm probably going to sound terrible on tape. Then I would start the conversation with you by saying, Jordan, I know you're going to think I'm this crazy ass woman doing way too many things. I'm going to sound terrible on tape. And you're going to think that interviewing me was a tire, an entire waste of time. And then if I pause there, what do I do for you? What do I just give you? Exactly. The opportunity to, to actually go and squash those fears for you to say, oh, no, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. We'll be great. Or to say, you know what? You're right. Like, <laughs> you, I do think you're crazy. And I'm a little bit worried you're going to do jumping jacks in the middle of the interview or something. And, and or like people can say, you know, I'm just nervous about our time. Right. Because mm. I agreed to seven minutes, but we only have six. And, and so I think that those tactics around asking are all like, 
teachable and learnable skills. So like my students, both at Northwestern and I also taught this at Lake Forest College, they have to do a hundred asks in 10 weeks. But by the end of it, they're over it. They can ask anybody for anything. I love it. I absolutely love it. I do want to move on to the methodology in which you have coming out called this idea of product market stick. So I want to pass it to you to explain the framework the way to think about it and how it's an evolution, I guess, not different from product market fit, but the, the next evolution. So I, yeah, open the door here for you to just kind of explain what you mean by it. And then we can dig a little deeper into practical uses. Sure. Well, I became an academic about five years ago. And I think I had imposter syndrome, even though I'd been an entrepreneur for about 25 years. So I went and read probably about 40 books to study it in academic paper because here I was, I was an entrepreneur, but I had imposter syndrome teaching, right? So when you look at the sort of proven structures and how you build build companies. There's two buckets. There's Steve Blank's, um, the customer development model that starts with customer discovery, customer validation, customer development, or customer creation, and then company building, right? And that is sort of mirrors the, the step that is a sort of dubbed value proposition design, which is founder market fit, product solution fit, product market fit, and then business model fit. And when I looked at those two things together, they had a lot in common. You always start with listening to your customer first. How do you identify a problem we're solving, right? And my definition for that is that entrepreneurs identify problems worth solving and mobilize the people, resources, and networks to solve them, period. So when you have to look at like, what do you study when you study entrepreneurship? It's really the art of mobilizing people, resources, and networks. Business school does not teach you that, but that is what entrepreneurs do. And once you've moved past that and you can really articulate value proposition design, and I love the blue ocean work the most in doing that, because they give you a framework for doing that. Then you get to product market fit. Do you have a problem we're solving and do you have a solution that solves it? You can get to product market fit, but you still may not win. And what I mean by that is that there can be lots of people out there that are solving the same problem that also have product market fit. But if you don't get to the next stage where you have create enough value for your customer that is exponentially larger than the competition or unique, you've defined a different white space, or you don't have 100% of their trust because the decisions you make along the way don't add up, and you haven't garnered your love, you're never going to get to loyalty, right? And how you beat the other guy with product market fit is really creating your own blue market and creating love and loyalty around that. So I'll give you an example. So my company that I co-founded with Nicole Wilson, my co-founder who I love, if we would have started in 2017, so we make, market, and sell delicious food that happens to be free from the top 14 allergens in corn. But the problem that we're solving is the number one pain point for the 60% of America that has a special diet. And that could be the 30% of the U.S. that has medically mandated diets from food allergies, autoimmune disease, that kind of thing, or dietary preferences, like uh, dietary preferences, whether that's vegan, flexitarian, kosher, paleo, keto, that when you merge all those diets together, there's 15 ingredients that, that they all have in common. They usually eliminate the top 14 allergens and corn and or corn and sugar. So when you look at most of the free from food out there, people that don't have a special diet won't eat it because it doesn't taste good. 
I've eaten more bad food than uh, anybody I could think of. What that causes is the people like, we have a lot of people in our family that have celiac disease. That means they always have to eat something separate than everybody else. And it creates all these social and emotional issues that no one talks about. It goes back to the same shame issue we're talking about with, with vulnerability, right? So if food tasted great, and it was also free from the top allergens and corn, that would mean everybody could eat it. What we set out to do wasn't to create another food company. We set out to give everybody a seat at the table, both literally and figuratively. And by literally, that means making great tasting food free of the top 14 allergens and corn, as well as doing so in a way that has the highest amount of integrity. And it took us years to do it because we chose that path. And what I mean is that we ended up having to build our own facilities that were free from allergens and corn because we thought it was very disingenuous to try to create something that made it safe for everyone to eat. And, and all of a sudden you're someone that can't eat nuts and you flip the package over and it says made in a facility that also processes nuts and corn and, and dairy. So the reason why we put the ingredients on the front is uh, we have data that people that have food allergies spend a year of their life reading labels, right? And we want them to be able to walk into a store, see our brand and say, I can eat that. And not only can I eat that, everybody in my family will eat that. So that was one of the things that we did to garner trust, right? And then when we looked at our mission to give everybody a seat at the table, figuratively, what that means is that 70% of our company are people of color. My teammates are majority people of color. When we went out to raise external capital, we worked twice as hard to make sure we had investors of color. 44% of our outside capital has come from investors of color and 22% from women. And 50% of our total investors are women. And we worked really hard to do that because when you look at how wealth is created in the United States, the reason why women don't necessarily amass as much wealth as men historically is because they don't invest. Well, they don't invest because they don't have social networks that invest. So they're hearing about deals and they don't have access to deal flow. So on top of what we're doing, we're looking at how do we educate them? When we look at what we're doing with our employees, we have employees that have come out of the system that can't get jobs, that have struggled to get out of gangs. And so we don't just hire them. When they got their stimulus checks from COVID, we did financial education with them and taught them how to do a budget, right? So it's really about lifting all boats. We're about to open a little restaurant that we couldn't get done because of COVID here in Evanston. And thank you to the SBA for the restaurant revitalization grant. And instead of just featuring our stuff, we're going to feature other local entrepreneurs' products that meet our criteria. We're going to focus on lifting all boats, right? So, so when people put a mission out there, you have to look at how do you operationalize it up down sideways because that's how you build trust is when you become bulletproof with your intentionality and your words so so like our purpose we're we're a family based company that is here to bring people together over a shared love of delicious food so when we make decisions we go back to those things our mission and our purpose are we promoting sharing are we giving everybody a seat at the table and when you really live your mission and purpose, you can garner love. Two years ago, this was a hypothesis. And today I will tell you it's in the numbers. 60% of our repeat customers have for almost a year now buy three times or more. On Amazon, even though our numbers are low, where our competitive brands are doing 30% repeat customers, we're doing 35%. 
at Whole Foods where we had a target of selling five, five and a half turns per week on each SKU. That was their average. We were going for seven. Last month we were at nine and a half. Now we're at 10 and a half. We have a couple stores that are at 25. We have one that's at 32. So when you're focused on product market stick, it's a different thing. You're really focused on integrity, value, and trust, right? Because when you have those things, you can deliver love. And when you get to love, you can usually get to loyalty. It's like commitment to a mission in in a non-exclusionary fashion, right? Which I think is so important. Like you're saying, you're bringing in other companies that meet the criteria. It's just a testament to the mission. Anyone with a phone can download the Nike Run app. You can use their app while using Adidas. They're just trying to promote running. And I love this with you all in the food because I think it's like one of the most primitive things that we did was sitting around a fire sharing food. And it was those first moments of connection and then finding a way that one person around that fire, you know, is not excluded by having to eat something different. And then building out this whole, they feel different. They feel like they're not part of the group. And there's like all of those subtle things that happen in the subconscious where now it's just, you know, everyone around the proverbial fire is getting along, sharing a meal, enjoying those moments together. And the food they can just enjoy it. They don't have to think about, is this going to make me sick? Does this have a nut allergy? You know, does it have nuts in it, et cetera? I think not only highlighting that ability, but then empowering people to have those moments around their table is just so important. And to you said, when you can do that, then you facilitate a brand that's based on a mission that people start to love, trust, and then will go and defend and become ambassadors for you. So it becomes sticky with them, but then they're out there telling their friends, like, you got to shop here. You got to go. You got to get some of this. This is great. Your next barbecue, get this. So I love it. Trish, before I let you go, can you let people know where they can connect with you online? Also, where they can find your food? Is it, yeah, Whole and Free Foods? Our website is uh, everybodyeating.com. Amazing. On Instagram, it's everybody underscore eating. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Patricia Thomas. Patricia Trish Thomas. Just look up Everybody Eat or Whole and Free Foods and you'll find me. And Jordan, I just wanted to leave you with one thing is that these days nothing counts unless you can measure it. So when I think about product market stick, I always look at what's the behavioral change, the how you know you'll made it when, right? And so for me, it's when I walk into a Super Bowl party and I can eat. Mm-hmm. And because um, the sharing of food, like you said, is the one thing that is the same in every single culture in the world. And when we can't all sit around the table and share the same food, that dynamic of family and communal bonding is blown apart. So this year, especially as we're coming back together for the first time to share food with the people we love, success to me is the more people that think about can everybody eat, the more we'll know we're making a difference. Amazing. And I will leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next episode. Um.